feels good to be uh, back up here teaching. Um, I've been, I haven't preached for two weeks, at least here anyways. Uh, I got the opportunity to preach uh, or teach at a, uh, at a youth conference um, uh, the first Sunday that I was, the Sunday that I was gone. Uh, preached four times on identity, uh, so that was, uh, that was fun, trying to help uh, middle school and high schoolers work through their identity in Jesus and not in... Uh, you know, their friends and, and all that. So it's been a long time since I'd, I'd preached to, to youth group age people. Um, so the first night was just trying to get them to be quiet. Uh, no offense. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and, and y'all, you see, it's, this was just, it was just a bad idea from the beginning because y'all know me. I mean, I'm like long-winded, over-technical sometimes, and, uh, and trying to teach middle schoolers. So, uh, again, no offense to middle schoolers. It's just, we just have on two different tracks. And uh, so it was a challenge for your pastor to try and uh, teach it in a way that they would understand. Um, so, actually, if I, I preached through Ephesians 2. What I did was I, t- I took, no joke, um, I took one sermon. It was the sermon that was the opener to identity and rhythms. If you remember that back, we preached through Ephesians 2. This is our old identity. This is our new identity. Uh, I took that passage and broke it into four lessons. Uh, so you all got that in like 70 minutes. They got it broken up over four different uh, sessions. Um, and believe it or not, I was actually able to keep each of the lessons to around 20, 25 minutes. Um, don't expect that here. Uh, <laughs> 20 to 25 minutes. Then, so that was that. Uh, you know, I got to play some video games. I uh, got to ride some go karts and stuff. So that was fun, all on someone else's check. And and because uh, <laughs> this this stuff's expensive, like eight bucks to go ride go karts for like you know 15 minutes. That's a lot of money. I I wouldn't. I, anyways, they paid for it, so it was fun. They paid for our expenses down and back. I get to see uh, my good friend Mitch and Sarah's good friend Leanne. We get to spend a week with them. As you know, we got snowed in. Uh, with like one inch of snow, and we got snowed in. I'm not kidding. Um, because down there, I think they use like lawn tractors to clear the roads, um, if you know what I'm saying. So they're like, I think this will move the snow. Uh, so I got, yeah, anyways, long story short, they got like literally one or two inches. I just I couldn't make it out because the roads were n- like, the whole town shut down. The whole city of Columbia shut down because of like one to two inches of snow. And I'm like, that's crazy, you know? Like, we don't shut down for one to two inches, <laughs> right? Maybe a foot, and we're like, oh, now, now we should, except for schools. They tend to cancel schools around here pretty easily, but, um, which is probably a good idea, but nevertheless, your work, right, your workplaces are like, you're still coming to work, right? You know, there's a foot of snow. <clears throat> yes, we're still coming to work. So, anyways, uh, then the second week, so, um, uh, let, me, let me show this little piece, too. I got the opportunity to speak on Sunday morning at that church that I did the youth thing at, uh, but I just got to like basically for five or ten minutes tell them thank you for the opportunity to speak with their youth and and uh, shared with them a little bit about Renovation Church, I mean as much as I could in five to ten minutes, um, and uh, what's really awesome is that our, my buddy Mitch has been wanting to lead that church to partner with us, and so after I got a chance to speak on that Sunday morning, he went back like a week or two weeks later and uh, had a meeting with some of their leaders and basically they're all super excited uh, to partner with Renovation Church for 
multiple purposes, whether just to help strengthen us as, as we continue to fight the fight here, and, um, but also for potential future partnership in, in uh, planting new churches out of Renovation Church. And so those are all exciting things. Um, that church, uh, they've got some, uh, they're a decent-sized church with some good resources, and both in manpower and finances and stuff. So I'm just excited about what God can do there. So after I did that, that was at like 10... 40 to 10:50. Then I drove 10 minutes down the road to another church to preach at 11. Uh, well, the service started at 11. I didn't preach till I didn't get up there till 11:30. And uh, it was a country church. Have anybody here ever been to a country church? Right? Yeah. Right. Um, so I get up at 11:30 and say, "Well, I need to tell you a little bit about Renovation Church, but that's the least. That's not the most important thing. And the most important thing is that that I get to preach to you the Word of God and." And, uh, and so I took like 10 minutes to tell him, just to give him, and, and it, was, it was really cool. Y'all would think I was like a celebrity walking into this church. I mean, y'all just, I'm just, you know, just your pastor. And, and uh, like I roll up and I'm on the sign out front, you know, it says, uh, pa- Welcome Pastor Matt McVee, Renovation Church, Ohio. I have a picture if y'all want to see that at some point. It's awesome. <laughs> I went back after lunch to take a picture. Uh, wow. A name is on a billboard. Well, just a letter sign, but nevertheless, it was on a sign. <laughs> and it rolled in, and the service had already started, and I had to walk all the way to the front, you know, because the pastor has to sit in the front. Here I do it because it's just easier. Uh, but uh, unless Sarah's out here, then I try to sit with her. But uh, all the way, so me, Sarah, three kids, all the way to the front. They'd already began service, only a center aisle, you know? And uh, so... We, you know, got the kids to the back as, as soon as we could, and, and which the back to take the kids in was on the side of the stage, you know, um, and uh, so I did that, and I got, up, like I said, then I got up to preach, gave them about 10 minutes of Renovation Church, and, and told them, so this is 1140, they're used to getting down at noon, <coughs> right, 20 minutes, and the, and the sermon, and if y'all don't know this, preachers do like to recycle sermons, that's a, being a good steward, I think. So I recycled the, the overview of 1 John that I preached just a handful of weeks ago. And, and uh, so I get up there and I said, you know, I preached this sermon to our people and it took me like 75 minutes to do so. And at this point I only have 20 before you get out at noon. And uh, I said, I, I said, uh, I said, two things are going to happen. Number one, um, we're not stopping at noon. Uh, it's going to take me a lot longer than noon to get uh, said. And the second thing that's going to happen is your pot roast is probably going to burn. Uh, so I hope you're okay with that already. Uh, so <laughs> we got done at 1230. Uh, I took them 30 minutes past, which is, I don't think was too bad. It was, it was a 50-minute sermon that I preached in 75 minutes uh, a couple weeks before that. So uh, the pastor got up and said, I th- and you all thought I preached long. <clears throat> and... Uh, and I, so I got a, I just kind of ran up there real quick and said, now you know your people can handle it. <laughs> uh, and no one got up and left. Uh, I told them they were, had permission to leave at noon. You all don't have that permission. Uh, but they have that permission to leave at noon because they maybe weren't expecting a 75-minute sermon. So anyways, 50 minutes, they took us out to lunch. Um, that morning alone, they collected $700 to give to Renovation Church. Um, and they, along with the other church, are bringing two mission teams up here. Uh, the first church probably the end of June, the second church the end of July. Uh, so I want you guys to be looking. We're going to do host homes and stuff to help save some costs because it's about a nine-hour drive. Um, so we're going to try and save some cost on their housing and stuff. So 
um, the end of June, the end of July, so kind of be thinking about those days um, um, for hosting people and, and, and such. So um, it was just a good time. It was exciting. Um, that little country church, I was like, I, I kind of got spoiled a little bit because as I was preaching, like, you know, I, I heard the, come on, preacher, you know. Uh, have you ever been to a country church? Come on, preacher. Uh, yeah, you know. Hey, man. Yeah, well, I don't need to hear any yeehaws, but uh, <laughs> but it was just like uh, I got used to them talking to me, and I'm like, this isn't good because I'm going to keep going the more you keep talking. <clears throat> but uh, anyways, I was thinking y'all could be a little more vocal. But uh, uh, anyways, it it was it was good. Um, last thing I'll say this: as you know, my grandfather passed uh, last Sunday. That's kind of why a few of us kind of bolted out of here very quickly. Um, and uh, as some of you know, how much he meant to me, how much he meant to uh, really our body, maybe more from like behind the scenes because of the influence that he's had in my life, and, and because of that, the influence indirectly he's had on all your guys' lives through me, and, and uh, uh, it's, been a, it's been a long week. Um, you know, in some ways, I'm glad the week's over. In some weeks, I don't want to ever forget. In some ways, I don't want to ever forget the week, you know? Um, I got the opportunity to preach his funeral yesterday, and by God's grace, made it through it um, without breaking down. It took me a few minutes to kind of get preaching, and once I kind of got into the text, it was just kind of flowed, and I thanked God for that. And and uh, I, I believe, you know, just as we desire here at Renovation Church, that the Word would have a primary focal point on Sunday mornings, and that the Gospel would always be the primary focus I believe that was my grandpa's desire, and so I tried to preach a message that, that did not just sound like a tribute to his life, but was more of a tribute to the gospel's work in his life, and, and uh, that's what I sought to do, um, and uh, so uh, anyways, thank you all for your prayers, I know my family appreciates it, my mom, grandma, and uh, such, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll continue on, we'll see him someday. Um, Either we'll get there by death, or we'll get there by Christ breaking open the sky. And either way, um, by God's grace, we'll persevere to the end. So, um, let's get into First John. A little bit of my catch-up. only took us about six minutes. Well, about ten minutes. First John chapter 2, we'll be 18 through 27 this morning. I, uh, I took up my introduction time to tell you all that, so we're just going to jump right into the text. Chapter 2, verse 18. He says this, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists, uh, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. And John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, um, I pray that Your Word would abide in us this morning. That the Word that already abides in many of us, that it would grow stronger. And Father, if there's anyone in here that the Word does not abide in, that Father, You would, by Your grace, change that today. And Father, I pray that we would walk out different people after hearing the teaching of Your Word and seeing the truths about You today. And Father, I love You. It's in Your Son's name. Amen. All right, first big thought here. We're in an age of great deception. We're in an age of great deception. Let's read 18 and 19 again. Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What is John saying here? Let's first of all, let's talk about like the last hour. I think the last hour here is referring to the time since Jesus' first coming and will continue until his second final coming. So this last hour that John is referring to is the season in which you and I are in as well as those who were reading John's words for the very first time. Uh, the church in Ephesus, we are still in that last hour. I mean, I hear many times people today, we refer to like the last hour as, well, you know, things are, I've heard these thoughts, you know, things are getting so bad, Jesus must be close to returning. You know, don't you think that Jesus is coming soon? We must be in the last days. And I want to tell you, John says here that we're in the last hours, but so as so just so is just so can't talk so we 2000 years later are in the last hours so they as well thought they were in the last hours at this point what does that mean does that mean Jesus isn't coming does it mean no that's not what i'm saying but notice here john says it's the last hour the antichrist is coming soon and many antichrists have already come the antichrists have already Come, there's already a presence of Antichrist here in the, in First John in the first century. And so, yeah, do do I think that um, that we are closer now to Christ's return than than when John penned these words? Well, absolutely. Just like now, we're closer than when I began preaching. I mean, clearly, right? We're, we are closer. But is there any indication? That, I mean, even beyond John, that we will see Christ in our lifetime, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I surely would love for Him to return in my lifetime and not to have to face death or my, my wife to have to face my, the loss of my life. I mean, I would love those things to, to happen, but I don't know that 
that there's any indication that he'll come in our lifetime. I mean, John says here, we're in the last hours. And here we are still 2,000 years later. And it doesn't mean we lose hope. It doesn't mean that, that Jesus isn't coming. Again, it means he is. John says he is. The Bible says he is. But um, I don't think there's any indication that we necessarily are in, like, literally the last hours. I think John means that the season of this world following the years of Christ has come. Like Christ's reign as the king of this new kingdom has come. So yes, I think we're closer to Christ's second coming than when John penned this, but I don't think we have any assurance that Jesus will come before any of us in here necessarily die. And I think if we're not careful and we start thinking too eschatological, like thinking too much of end times prophecy stuff when he's talking about the last hours. If we don't watch it, we will miss his point. His point is not to talk about the, the, uh, uh, the end times. His point is to talk about the deception in the season of this world following Jesus. Following Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, all of that. His point is to talk about the deception even during that time post Christ's resurrection. John's warning is that we're in this last hour and there is deception already. I mean, the church has only been around, I mean, understand, for just a handful of years at this point. Probably like three decades, four decades, somewhere around there. Like this, this, is, this has not been long and deception has already creeped in. Now, for just sort of clarification's sake, he talks about here antichrist and antichrists. Right? There's kind of two acknowledgments in John's writing. If you look back there at the passage, he says, I heard that antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. I think John acknowledges both a person who will be the antichrist who will come and a group of people which would be anybody who is anti-Christ. So there's two kind of categories, if you will. One that involves just one person, one that involves anti-Christs, these people. And understand, he, John saw this 2,000 years ago, and just a few decades into the life of the church, there were already anti-Christs. How much more so in multiplication over 2,000 years can that anti-Christs become present? So there seems to be an Antichrist, a singular, powerful person that is on his way. But there also seems to be, by John's letter here, that there will be lesser Antichrists that are coming. And indeed, they're already here, by John's words. The next thing I want to draw out for us in this passage is that the deception here came from within. The deception John's talking about came from within the body in Ephesus. Because <clears throat> there were already people among the Ephesians who John considered Antichrist. Now they're Antichrist, particularly in this context, because they're denying vital salvific doctrine. They're denying salvific doctrine, a doctrine that pertains to salvation, namely the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And John, 
Well, this is part of how we can tell the weightiness of the doctrine that they're denying. So when they deny the incarnation of Jesus, John says that they're anti-Christ. So like when we think of what doctrine that we believe when it comes to salvation, like the virgin birth and, and uh, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and those kind of things, when, when we think about those, when we go, okay, so what is necessary for salvation? We can go to this text and go, well, according to John, we know at the very least, belief that Jesus came in the flesh, that God came in the flesh is necessary for salvation, because when they deny it, John calls them antichrist and says they were never a part of us. They were never saved. They were never redeemed. They were never a part of the community of God. So, but the thing to point out here, I think, is that the deception was from within. Now, there'll be plenty of deception from without, but at this point, John says the deceptions come from within. They thought they were a part of us. We thought they were a part of us. So I think there are kind of three warnings here for us. There's plenty of implications that we can pull from here, but I think there's three big main warnings already in this passage that we see. One is this, that these deceivers thought that they could know God apart from knowing Jesus. They thought they could know God apart from knowing Jesus. They claimed to be followers of God, right? They, they thought they were a part of the community of God. And just, just being familiar with the whole of 1 John, that's why if you haven't read all of 1 John yet, make sure you read it as soon as possible. You have these people who thought they had Christ figured out. But they denied, and here's the key, they denied what the Scriptures taught so clearly. I mean, at this point, what had been taught by the apostles so clearly, they denied, and namely, the incarnation of Jesus. This wasn't a gray issue. This was something that was clearly taught. It was God in the flesh. There was, there's no indication of Jesus just being some spiritual representation of God in the flesh. There's, there's no indication of that. But that he indeed was man. And they denied this. So the question for us is, can we know God without knowing Christ? Let me just give you kind of a side thought here. First of all, the answer is no. Now when we think of people that we engage at work, at school, neighbors, and so on and so forth, what, it, what is it? Well, I love God, right? I love God, or I worship God, or God thinks I'm a good person, right? I would encourage you in conversation with people that Jesus is a big distinction that must be drawn out. It can't just be, well, I love God. You can't love God without loving Jesus. And then if you love the right Jesus, then you love Jesus who is God. Does that make sense? So you can't just go, okay, good, I'm glad you love God. We must be brothers and sisters. It doesn't work that way. Do you know Jesus? Because Jesus is the only way to know God. So I would encourage you to draw out those, that distinction when you're engaging people with the gospel. 
Now, the question for us is, where do we try to know God without knowing Christ? I don't want to push the text too far here, but where do we try to know God without knowing Christ? Because I, I don't think many of us probably struggle with denying the incarnation of Jesus. I mean, at least from what I can tell about our body, none of us are working through that doctrine going, I just, I just don't know about that. Um, but where can we try to know God without knowing Jesus, just a couple examples, and I, I hope you'll ask that question of yourself this week and think through that. But here's an example. Maybe when we try to come before God on our own righteousness. When we try to come to God on our own righteousness, we are denying the work of Jesus on the cross. We're saying, I want to know you, God, but I don't want to come through Jesus. So why did Jesus do what he did then? Because we're just saying, well, I don't need that, right? And, and functionally denying Christ at that point. How do I come to God? Maybe when we try to sanctify ourselves instead of trusting in God's work through Jesus to sanctify us, right? Pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps is functionally denying Jesus. I don't need the work of the gospel in my life today. I can know God apart from Jesus' work in my life. I think it's functionally how we can fall into the same trap. And the warning for us is to realize that we cannot know God apart from knowing Jesus. So both in our evangelism and then both in our own sanctification, how we live. Second warning is that the deceivers thought they were part of the community of God. The deceivers thought they were part of the community of God. And then what happened? They eventually fell into their own deception and tried leading others into that deception. And that creates the occasion for John's letter. Who are the deceivers? Well, John says, let me help you figure that out. And let me help you understand that they're no longer apart, but they thought they were. How does this happen? I mean, how do, how do people who think they're a part of the community of God become deceivers and fall away? I mean, just a couple practical thoughts here, and there's lots we can say about this, but just a couple things at the top of my mind. It typically takes a long time for someone who's a part of the body to eventually be deceived and slowly slip away. It's typically not something that happens overnight. It's a slow, it's a, a heart that slowly is hardened. And understand that sometimes that is visibly represented in church attendance. You know, or kind of heart just kind of slowly and it kind of begin to slip away. And then, and then all of a sudden you find yourself without it completely. But it's, it's more than that. We're talking about a heart that is beginning to harden towards God. And the truth that's been revealed to you in God's word. That takes typically a long time. I mean, a long time. Could be weeks, could be months, could be years. But typically it just doesn't happen overnight. The other thing that comes to mind when I think about how does this happen is it typically takes a lot of self-justification. It takes a lot of self-talk. Convincing yourself that what God's Word says isn't really true. You know, the Bible says I need the community of God, but yeah, I don't really need the community of God, right? I mean... Jesus, you know, God won't surely kill you, will he? No, he's just afraid you'll become like him and, and know good and evil, right? 
Yeah, I think that's right. So I'll eat of the tree. Right? Self-justification. Just a couple big things there that I think help us slip in these deceivers. So, I mean, again, we don't know exactly what happened. All we know is that they thought they were the part of the community of God. They began believing a lie and so slipped away and realized later that John says that they were never a part of them. So the warning, I think, for us is to think, to not think that this couldn't happen to you, to me. That we could think we're a part of the community of God and then over time it be revealed ultimately that we were never really a part of the community of God. And I hate to say that, but I think we see that even in Renovation Church, if you've been around for a while, we've seen that. The people thought, and we thought, part of the community of God, and then it slowly began to slip away, revealing most likely that they were probably never really a part of the community of God. Now, I've got more to say about that in a few minutes, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. The point is here, I don't, don't think that this couldn't happen to you or to me. Don't think that this couldn't happen to your elders. And we could begin to believe a lie. Third warning, I think, that we can draw from the text is realize that as a community, we are responsible for doctrinal purity. As a community, we are all responsible for doctrinal purity. I just don't want us to miss the broader context here, right? John is writing to a local church. He's not writing to a bunch of individuals, although the individuals are there, but they make up a body. There's, there's words of, they thought they were a part of us, but they were not indeed a part of us. There's a community thing. John is addressing the community. There's a community in which doctrine is being protected here. John is leading them as a community to protect the doctrine. There is also a community from which these people are leaving. The deception that happened is inside the community, and then now it's being ushered out of the community. Yeah, so I just, I just want to warn us that the danger doesn't o- the danger of, of bad doctrine, wrong teaching doesn't always come from the television, although that's a huge source of it. It doesn't always come from the internet, although that's a huge source of it. It can come from within the body. And our responsibility as a body is to protect it. And so ultimately, I've not really had the opportunity to preach on this yet, but just as a comment, <coughs> there's, God, body, there's a sense in which you are ultimately accountable to God for the doctrine that is taught from this very spot. Like your responsibility is that if we do not teach the Word of God, your responsibility is to kick us out. Myself, Rusty, many other teachers. There's appropriate ways to do that, but your responsibility is to, is, is to, to remove us if we would not teach the Word of God. There's a weightiness there. <clears throat> That's why as we install new as we install new elders, um, you guys have the responsibility to affirm them and to welcome them into that position. Because you ultimately have the responsibility to remove them when they're unfaithful. 
Now, it doesn't mean just because they don't have a hairstyle that you like or, you know, they uh, whatever. But if they're not teaching the Word of God and living according to the Word of God in an unrepentant way, then it's your responsibility. So, and, and, and understand, we, first as members of this church, Rusty and I, have that responsibility as well. But then we're also given responsibility as shepherds and overseers and elders to help you all protect that too. But it's... Uh, it's a responsibility of the whole body. So here, I just want us not to miss that this fits into a grander picture of, the, of John addressing the local church. And of course, it's application to us as a church that, that we are responsible to protect doctrinal purity. And along with that would come unity of the body. And this has to be fought hard for. Right? So as, as God adds new people to Renovation Church, we're to fight for unity particularly unity in doctrine, to fight for that. How are we to fight for something if we don't know it? Right, so that would be the other implication of this, is that, that John is saying to fight for this doctrine that you, what? You know. That you know. We can't fight for something that we don't know. And you're not going to learn enough of it just from Sunday mornings, Okay? All right, we can stop belaboring that point. Let's go to the next. So that's kind of three warnings I think we see. The last thing I want to draw out from just these first couple verses is that John says, and I've already said this a number of times, but just to make it emphatic, they were never a part of us. I think this is important to consider. John is not saying that they lost their salvation. Instead, he says that they were never saved in the first place. They were never a part of us. And I think as we get through a little bit later, we'll find out why and how they were never a part of us and why John kind of draws that conclusion. <clears throat> if you look at the literal Greek translation of back here, and if you go back to verse uh, 19, it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then they would have continued with us. But when they went out, that it, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. All right, so that's a big old mouthful. But basically, the literal translation at this point is this. But their going was in order that they may be revealed that they all are not of us. They go, their going is in order that it would be revealed, really, the true colors of their heart. Who indeed they really are. Because that's why our fruit ultimately shows who we are. That's why a lie, like faith without works, is dead. Because our works and what we do reveal the true colors of our heart. So them leaving was in order to reveal to the church in Ephesus who indeed these deceivers really were. And that is, they were never of God in the first place. They were anti-Christ all along. Now I'm sure they didn't think of themselves as anti-Christ. They probably weren't always functionally anti-Christ, as in leading the church into deception. But in their hearts, they were always anti-Christ, as we all were prior to our salvation, right? But we were prior to God rescuing us, we were anti-Christ as well. 
But these, he says, they were, this was done in order that it be revealed that they are not of us. John understood the purpose of this event was to show this. And guys, we must realize that God in His grace will orchestrate things in such a way so as to reveal the true nature of our hearts as well. You, you've heard me say, you know, when do you know that you're sleeping? You don't know that you're sleeping until you wake up, right? Take something to wake you up. Sometimes we don't know the true color of our heart. We don't know the sin, and God orchestrates things so as to reveal the true colors of what's inside. So, the lost people among the community didn't just fall away. Again, they were never a part of them. Now, I want to say something very specific to us as a church, because we think about this and how these people who left the body were f- like were never a part of us. Indeed, there will be and has been people a part of Renovation Church that have gone and needed to go because they were false in teaching or, or never a part of us. That indeed has happened. But I want us to be careful because I think as a church, we can be too quick to say when someone stops coming, that they are indeed anti-Christ. Does that make sense? And so, in order to kind of remove the responsibility that we have to pursue them. So if we're too quick, I think we can misapply the text in a community, particularly a community that's as tight as ours. The, the danger is that when someone begins to drift away, we can go, oh, well, I guess they were never a part of us in the first place. And the fact is, you don't know that. You don't know. And we don't have John writing as an apostle, writing underneath the authority and inspiration of God to tell us that they're not. Or that they are indeed antichrist. We don't know. We're to pursue that. We're to pursue them. Just want to encourage us that when someone begins to drift away, it's not just, okay, well, they were never a part of us. And John says so. No, 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 no. That would be misapplying the text. Now, we could find out six months later or a year later, and we've pursued them hard, and, and they, just, they want to continue in unrepentant sin and, and such, whatever the case may be, and we may find out, yes, they were never a part of us, but it's not our responsibility to make that judgment particularly so quickly as we can because it's more convenient and easier for us just to let them go, right? So we can just... We can kind of get them off of our heart and off of our mind, and we don't have to feel responsible for that. We just want to wash our hands of the situation. That's not a picture of the gospel, right? I mean, God pursued us in spite of our sinfulness and our death and the dead and our trespasses. He pursued us in that. So a picture of the gospel would not be just to wash our hands and wipe away, but would be to, to put on our gloves and go hard to work. That would be a better picture. So let's not misapply this text. And that's where I said, I'll say more about this in a few moments. That's what I meant. <clears throat> we cannot just wipe our hands. And I wanted to say this too. When it comes to pursuing people that are beginning to drift away from the body, it's not just your elders' responsibility. I mean, we have a responsibility to do that because we are first and foremost members of the body. But our responsibility falls more in the line of equipping you to go after them. 
Now, we will go after them too because, again, we're members and we're trying to protect the flock. But that can't just be our job, okay? Your responsibility is to pursue them. Why? Because God pursued you. Because He loves you. So, to kind of recap first point here, I think for, for ages and ages, at least in the American church, right, there's been no persecution. We're naive into thinking everyone is some sort of Christian. And I tell you, even this past week, I've just had a big wake-up call to look around and just, wow, we just are not a Christian nation. Like, we've just, just I mean, I've known that, right? But just, it's like every day it goes by, I go, wow, wow. I mean, you know, the whole homosexual thing is just more rampant, just more obvious, it's less hidden, it's more accepted. Um, you know, just seeing it kind of just right in your face. And, and I think this is good in a way in that Christians hopefully are beginning to wake up and realize that we live in an age of deception and many of us have been deceived and many of us don't realize how deceived we are or have been. John says that the Antichrists have come already, indeed, 2,000 years ago. And Satan's just been perfecting his craft as a non-perfected being. He's had 2,000 years post-Christ to be perfecting his craft. He's getting better every day. So, for us, we have to understand that if we're not to be led astray, we have to know the Word of God. We have to know the truth that has been put in us. So the fact is, deception is not going to lessen, but instead we have two opportunities. One opportunity, or two options, when it comes to this. We can either stay lethargic in our growth and so be deceived when a good enough deception comes by. That's option one. Because some of us are just kind of getting by, and just what's happened is just a good enough deception hasn't come by. And when that one comes by, because we've just grown stale in our walk with God, when one comes that's just good enough, when that apple looks just delicious enough, when the delight in something else begins to trump delight in God, you will choose that. It just hasn't come yet for many of us. <clears throat> and that will happen if we remain lethargic in the truth that we pursue to know. The other option is this, is that we would grow in our knowledge of the Word and so advance the kingdom of God. That's our other option. There's not a middle of the road here, right? Remember when we, we take care to hear the Word of God, both in preaching and as we read it, and so our heart is either hardened as we hear the Word of God or it's softened as we hear the Word of God. It's the same thing here. <clears throat> if we're not growing in that, then deception will come, and we're am among deception. And I want you to think, maybe think this week, think through, like, where do I see deception at? Like, where do you see it? Why do you see it? Because in order to know it's deception, you've got to have the truth to hold up next to it, right? Otherwise, you don't see it as deception. You have nothing to compare it to. So think this week, you know, as you look around and go, what deception do I know and what truth am I holding up next to it that I know? Where do I know that truth from? Do I know that to be true? And why? How? Where? I would hope... You recognize deception, and you see that as deception because of the Word of God that you hold up next to it. 
So I know that to, f- to find delight in a, in a homosexual relationship, I know that to be deception because God's word says this. Right? So do that this week. Think, think through. And then, then go, am I, ask God, am I being deceived somewhere that I don't know? Am I being deceived in an area that I'm not sure of? That I'm blind to? All right. Sermon number one. Sermon number two. <laughs> Point number two is this. Avoiding deception comes from the Holy Spirit and the Word. So I've basically just kind of given point number two away. But avoiding deception comes from the Holy Spirit and the Word. Let's go on, verse 20. It says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. He says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. And if what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So John now begins to encourage the Ephesians concerning their ability to avoid deception. We've kind of already hinted at some of this just because we've had to. But concerning their ability to to avoid deception. I think there's kind of three things that we see underneath here concerning the ability to avoid deception. The one is this. We must understand that knowing the Word is a gift of God. Knowing the Word is a gift of God. Wow, they were like, knowing the Word is a gift of God. I have to say this, just, I love your guys' patience with all of that, and the sound from the nursery, and, and uh, I used to say to my buddy Mitch, who I just went down to South Carolina to see, he preached at a country church for years, it's actually the, the church that the now pastor of Bethlehem Baptist, where Piper is, the church he pastored at before he went there, my buddy Mitch pastored that little country church, they have like 30, 40 people on Sunday morning, multiple infants in, in here, all crying and stuff, and I used to tell him, I mean, I don't know how you do that. I don't think I could ever do that, right? And here we sit, um, because they're so close, right? But, but yet, uh, it's so raw, though. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's so un, uh, st- it's not sterile, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a, a rawness to it, where they're with us, but yet they're not with us, and the, but yet their voice, anyways, side note. All right, back to the text. Knowing the Word is a gift of God, all right? Notice these verses, 1 John 2, 20 through 21. It says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So notice he says there in 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One. Now look at verse 27 of chapter 2 again. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. So the teaching here, John says that if we are a child of God, 
that we're a part of the community of God, that we have all knowledge. Now, I want to say, he said, the translation, the ESV here translates this as, you all have knowledge. There's debate because there's, uh, I don't want to get too technical here, but if you, if you study translations, there's what we, ha- what we have, they're called textual variants, okay? And a textual variance is where you'll have this big body of manuscripts that differ from this big body of manuscripts. So some manuscripts would lead you to translate this as you have all knowledge versus the other body of transcripts would be you all, like you all, or if you're from Kentucky, y'all have knowledge. Right, difference? Y'all have knowledge versus you have all knowledge. Right? I think from the context, the better translation is you have all knowledge. But it's debatable. I don't think it changes majorly the point of the text. But first of all, this knowledge comes from the Holy One. Right? So it's this knowing the Word comes from God. And then if you take it as we have all knowledge, I think from the context, what John is saying, that you have all knowledge, I think, if I'm understanding the text correctly, all knowledge concerning the issue at hand. I think that's John's point. I don't think he's saying, John is saying, you have all knowledge as in you know everything. I think he's saying you have all knowledge concerning the issue at hand. Now, why do I think that? Um, first of all, it's because it's the Holy One who's anointing them. But then also, I think this is right in line with the promise of Jeremiah 31. If you look at later, go this week, go look at Jeremiah 31, verse 34. It says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then if you look later this week at John 6, verse 45, it says, It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, and they shall be taught by God. I think what John's getting at here is that the issue at hand, the issue of knowing Jesus, knowing Him as the incarnate Son of God, you were taught that by God. Like God wrote that on your heart. God is the one who taught you that. I think what John is, part of what John's getting here too is that it's not just this intellectual assent to truth, but it's God has taken this truth and you now know it. Like more than just intellectually know it, but you know it. You believe it. You love it. God has done this. Because why? God is the only one who can do that. God is the only one who can take your heart from desiring lies to desiring and loving the truth. And God has now taught you this. So, first of all, knowing the Word is a gift of God. Second of all, God enables us through the Holy Spirit to know the truth. God enables us through the Holy Spirit to know the truth. So, if you study theology, this would be uh, like the, the doctrine of the illumination of the Holy Spirit, right? The, the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth to our eyes, not just to intellectually understand it, but also to love it, to live 
by it. So I'm not going to take the time to, to, to break through all of that. But in this passage, we see that it's through this anointing that we know the truth. John is saying, through this anointing, you know the truth. Because of the work of God, we know the truth, 20 and 21. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have, again, all knowledge. Now the question really is this. What truth is it that the Holy Spirit is bringing us to know? What truth, in this context, is the Holy Spirit bringing the Ephesians to know? What truth is the Holy Spirit illuminating their minds to grab a hold of, to know, to live by? I mean, because understand that those deceivers here would have been claiming that the Holy Spirit has led them to greater understanding. So they'd heard these things about the incarnation of Jesus, and they say, ah, you know, the Holy Spirit has led us to better understand the text in such a way that we believe now that this is, Jesus was not incarnate. It was just a spiritual representation of Him. He, basically, the deceiver is saying, come let us truly know about Jesus. Let us ignore these passages that speak of Him being literally a man, and instead they mean this or that. Now, I know some of this is not new news, but this is what cults have done, right? Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, no, let me, I have a better enlightenment when it comes to this that, that it doesn't really mean that Jesus came, or that Jesus was God, it means that He was one of many gods. No, new news, new change. Now, I don't think any of us are teetering, like going, okay, God has given us a new revelation, and I think Jesus, you know, really was just a long-haired hippie and, and uh, you know, just had a lot of cool things. I mean, none of us, at least that I know of, are teetering on denying the divinity or the humanity of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but what truths are we, what's the risk for us? What truths are you or we asking the Holy Spirit to bring to you? Like, what are you wanting the Holy Spirit to bring to you concerning truth? Maybe some sort of emotional peace or maybe justification for something that you want to do? I mean, it was hard for me to think of some examples for this, but I think there's, just think through this week, what are you asking the Holy Spirit to bring to you? And I think I can better give you, explain what that means by giving you what it, what it shouldn't be. Okay? And that is this. John tells us plainly in this context what truth the Holy Spirit is helping the Ephesians to understand. <clears throat> Look at verse 20. Let's read 20 and 21 again. It said, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. You, have, you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is in the truth. So what truth is he talking about? What, what knowledge is the Holy Spirit anointing them with? Look at verse 24. He says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Now what would they have heard from the beginning? As John is saying that the Holy Spirit will help the Ephesians to know what they've been taught from the beginning. Well, what's the teaching that they've been taught from the beginning? 
be the teaching of the apostles. Be the teaching, not some new teaching. It's the teaching that the apostles had taught them from the beginning. Peter, James, you know, John, Paul. Certainly the Old Testament. What you've been taught from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit will help them know what they had been taught from the beginning in the Word. It wasn't the Holy Spirit will give you some new, crazy, radical idea concerning Jesus. No, He will help you understand more clearly, more thoroughly what you've already been taught. So for us, the Holy Spirit, we should desire and ask God that the Holy Spirit will help us understand the Word of God as the Apostles taught. Let me give you a modern example of maybe where we've kind of strayed from this. Just very practically, many denominations I think have functionally denied the sovereignty of God. Here's an example of where. Uh, think about the idea of like anxiety. Anxiety. How do we how have you heard someone counseled through anxiety? Like worry. How are they counseled? <clears throat> oh, well, the Bible says don't do it, right? The Bible says don't do it. Or the other extreme is it'll all be okay. Everything's good. Keep your chin up. I'm here for you, right? Not that those are bad, but well, maybe they are. How about... Where's your belief in God's sovereignty? Where's your belief in God's sovereignty? So we need to learn God's sovereignty as the apostles taught it so that we can live by it instead of having, living by our own idea of how to deal with anxiety. So we need to, I would encourage us to repent for our lack of belief in God's sovereignty. And I think we should repent for leading, leading people to depend on their own ability to rise up out of anxiety or their own ability to temporarily put aside their worry. But instead, say, where's your belief in God's sovereignty? So, so where we have exchanged what the apostles taught, we've exchanged that for something new, something more therapeutic, right? Something that kind of massages our heart and worry versus ripping the sin out of our heart. Because um, that's a little more painful, right? <clears throat> so I, would encourage, I think that's a, a modern example. So we should ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand the Word of God. So we said God help, God, knowing the Word is first of all a gift of God. I think that's a good perspective for us to keep in mind whenever, just as we're walking this journey, that we would know that the truth of God is first and foremost a gift of His and not a result of my work, my doing, but instead as a gift of His. Secondly, that the Holy Spirit, even in my efforts to learn the Word, that it's the Holy Spirit who enables me to know the Word as I study. Thirdly, the Word will also test the Spirit. The Spirit helps us understand the Word, but the Word also tests the Spirit. I don't mean that like as in it tests the Holy Spirit, but tests the Spirit like that we're hearing. Does that make sense? Like a test is to discern which spirit are we hearing from. The Holy Spirit 
or some other spirit. 1 John 4, 2-3. Let's, if you have your Bibles, turn over to there. Just a couple pages over. It says, By this you know the Spirit of God. By this you know the Spirit of God. So by this you know that it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So, in dealing with anxiety, if the spirit doesn't push you to Jesus, then it's the spirit of the Antichrist. And so if you're talking about like psychology and counseling, if it's counseling that leads you to not Jesus, but to some other sort of dependence, it's antichrist. It's not just okay, I'm just trying to help them. No, it's antichrist. But a spirit that leads us to dependence on Christ, that confesses Christ, that's the Holy Spirit. That is Christ, not anti-Christ. The Holy Spirit will never lead you away from Christ. So think about this. As you work through sin in your life, right? As you work through sin in your life, one way to test, am I handling this in a God-honoring way, is at the end of this trial or the way that my counsel I'm receiving or the way I'm counseling myself, is it leading me to confess Christ or is it leading me to confess my own ability or someone else's ability or to glorify someone else? What is it doing? If it leads me to greater dependence, more confession of Christ, then that is the Holy Spirit. If it's not, then it's something else. So in your marriage, as you work through problems in your marriage and you get help, does that help lead you to greater dependence on Christ as a couple? Or does it lead you to greater dependence on the other person or to just not dwelling on things or, or whatever it might be? That's not of Christ. This is of Christ. Greater dependence on Him. Not less dependence on Him. So the Word will always test the Spirit. So the Spirit telling you that you are good enough apart from Jesus, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit telling you that Jesus is not delightful enough to choose over your sin, that this sin is more delightful than, than choosing Christ, that's not the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit telling you that, yes, Jesus is more delightful than that apple that you might choose to eat. Because the Spirit will never lead you to do something against the Word of God. That's really the gist of what Paul is saying here, or John is saying here. That the Holy Spirit will never lead you to do against, for example, God will never lead you to abandon your church community. Which is so prevalent in our age. We just up and leave. Because you're a hand, you're a foot. You're to, the Bible calls us to give preference to the body. Now, true, you may be called it someday to another local body. I really believe that if we're following the, the text that, that this body would be a part of that process. That you would say appropriate goodbyes. That you would close up things that you are responsible here. And, and if that's the case, I think that can happen. But God would never call you to just, goodbye, 
See you all later. The Spirit will always lead you in sync with the Scriptures. Always lead you in sync with the Scriptures. So Christian, Christian, do you search the Scriptures with a gratitude knowing that your ability to know it is a gift from God? Do you, do you search the Scriptures knowing that your ability to know it is a gift from God? Do you have gratitude for that? Do you test the spirits around you with the Word of God, or do you just give in to the loudest voice? You ever, have you ever heard this? Oh, you know, when you're struggling with something, that real, still, quiet voice, that's the Holy Spirit. Anyone ever been told that? Where does it say that at? This is pretty loud if you just read it. You know what I'm saying? That's pretty black and white. You just read it. I mean, I know I'm being facetious, but... I mean, you got spirits telling me to sin, 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 and I read this and it goes, don't do it. That's pretty plain. That's not the still quiet voice. You know? I mean, if you want, we put it on like an audio track and turn the volume up, right? And there's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Right? Just make it a little bit louder than the other one, and you can go with the loud. I mean, seriously, who are we listening to? Are we just going with the voice that, that bids the loudest? You know, I'll give you $100 if you come do this. Let's not listen to the loudest voice. Let's not listen to the softest voice. Let's listen to God's voice, right? The Holy Spirit will lead us to know that, to, to learn it, to love it. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps us remember it. But He can't help us remember something that we didn't know in the first place. So do you test the spirits around you with the Word of God, not just go what feels the best or what's the loudest? Parents, do you want to help your kids avoid deception? How many of us parents would love for our kids to fall into deception someday? None of us, right? I would hope not. Then learn the Word of God and teach them the Word of God. So that they too might test the same spirits that you've been testing. But if they don't learn, if you don't test the spirits with the word of God, they'll never test the spirits unless God speaks into their heart by another miraculous way outside of that which he's called you to do primarily. And that's to teach them the word of God. Husbands, do you want your marriage to avoid deception? You must know the word of God and teach it to your spouse. Church family, do you want our church to avoid deception? We must know the word and defend it, right? We can't defend that which we do not know. Now, you do not know whether or not you're a follower of Christ. I wonder if you realize just how deceived you are. God is truth and in him is no lies, no deception. Any spirit that is not leading you to place your trust in Jesus Christ is a deceiving spirit. Any thought that keeps you from God is a lie. The truth is, according to the Bible, you need Jesus. He's the only one who can rescue you from the deception that will ultimately be your destruction. And that, guys, that is, that's where I believe a proper understanding of persevering in the faith is so important because 
we need the continued work of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we too do not fall into deception to find out in the end that we were ultimately never apart. That's the danger. I'm not talking about losing our salvation. I'm talking about realizing it was never there in the first place. Okay, last point. We'll boogie through this one very quickly. We must remain in what we have heard. We must remain in what we have heard. <clears throat> 1 John 2, 25-27. And this is the promise that, has, that He made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as He has taught you, abide in Him. So what does it mean, first of all, to abide? The idea here is that we would strive in such a way that the work of the Holy Spirit in helping us to understand the Word would continue in us. I think that's the kind of the idea here of abiding, that we would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, work in such a way as the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the Word and we would continue in this, that that truth that we were taught that we would continue in that. That we would remain steadfast, if you will, in the truth of the gospel. As I think the biggest danger for each one of us here is not what you might be taught from the pulpit next week or from the church next week. It's what you might teach your own heart tomorrow. It's when your own heart begins to abide in something else rather than what you have been taught and you continue to coax and coerce yourself to believe that lie. That's the greater danger. Which you might try to convince yourself of tomorrow, that you maybe you don't need Jesus to be in right relationship with God, and instead your own righteousness is enough. I think that's the greater danger. That we begin to abide in a lie versus the truth. John is not saying here that no one needs to teach you anything concerning the Word. I think what John is saying is this, that there's a quality and efficacy, like, a, like an effectiveness, if you will, an efficacy, a consistency that characterizes the message that they have embraced. So that message concerning Jesus and who He was and His incarnation, His flesh, that there's a there's an effectiveness, there's a quality, consistency. This you need to abide in, and that is what God has taught you. He's saying, I think that the core gospel message that they had received does not need any revisions. It doesn't need changed. So like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses need to read that. I think that's one of the main ways that God is not going to give us a new revision 1,800 years later, just as He didn't give them a revision 40 years later. They didn't need it then. They don't, we don't need it now. We need the gospel as it was taught. And so we do not need our own slight revisions that we can make to the gospel in our own heart. And I think John's saying that God has taught you this very thing. He is the one that makes the truth resonate in our heart. Right? It's not the delight in getting to do what we want to because we've altered the truth in our heart. It's No, it's, it's the truth in our heart that God 
that leads us to repentance and dependence on Him, it's that truth that as it resonates in our hearts, we know it to be of God as it leads us to dependence on Christ. So, in conclusion, in this passage there are deceivers and there are those they are attempting to deceive. The deceivers have denied the Jesus of the Bible but still maintained that they could know God. I mean, none of these people were saying, Jesus is not incarnate, and because of that, we don't know who God is, so let us leave, right? No, we know who God is, and we know the true Jesus. And you all need to join us. I mean, that's what the deceivers are saying. They thought they knew God. But John says two things about those who were deceivers. He said that they believed a lie, and that they were never a part of them. John says, I think ultimately what he's saying is that they were never redeemed. So we must be on watch that we could be just as easily deceived, right? You all realize that? Shake your head with me if you agree. We could be just as easily deceived. And you're probably the prime candidate to deceive yourself tomorrow, right? Um, We must be on guard with just as easy. Any spirit, thought, teaching that leads you away from Christ is a lie, right? Understand the daily implications I think this has for you. When the world tells you that you're good enough apart from Jesus, it's a lie. When you begin to find your identity in the words of others apart from Jesus, or I mean, there's a thousand examples we could give you. That's a lie. How are we to avoid deception? We understand that it's, first of all, a gift of God that we would understand the word. We understand that it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to understand the Word. And then we test the Spirit with the Word, right? And then the last thing, as he closes here, is that we remain in what we have been taught. We abide in the truth. I hope, guys, I hope, when you think of the Gospel, as I reflected this past week on, on my grandpa's passing last Sunday, you know how I got through the week? You know how I got through preaching on Sunday? Or, sorry, Friday? It was by abiding in the truth. It was by abiding. That doesn't mean that I never cried. It doesn't mean that I never had potentially even sinful thoughts of regret and things like that. It doesn't, doesn't mean I never had those. But I knew the Spirit that was leading me to be the Holy Spirit as He led me to abide in Jesus. To abide in my redemption in the blood. To think of my grandpa that he is now eternally without struggle abiding in the cross. Right? That he is remaining in the truth that we have to fight for to remain in that truth. And it is a battle and I hope you guys see that. And it's not going to get easier. Okay? Let's abide in the truth. Let's abide in the gospel. Let's abide in what God has taught us. Right? So, let me pray, and we'll sing, and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your graciousness to us this morning. Thank you for um, warning us of deception. Father, just as you've not left us to try and figure this thing out on our own, 
Father, you too have not left us to try and persevere on our own, but Father, you've given us passages of warning and passages of encouragement and examples of encouragement, examples of warnings. And, and uh, Father, you've given us a plan to avoid deception, but it's not a plan that is just dependent upon our own doing. It's a plan dependent upon your doing. That our perseverance and avoidance of deception would come as a gift of God just as our initial salvation and justification comes as a gift of God. So too our perseverance is a gift of God. And so Father, I just ask that as we continue this week, as we continue today, that Father, we would test the spirits around us with the word. Father, that we would hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that He would lead us, the Holy Spirit would anoint us to learn Jesus through His Word. From Genesis to Revelation. So Father, as we sing the song, It is finished, we know that our perseverance is as sure as the work of Jesus is finished on the cross. And Father, we love You, and it is in Your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with me?